Ahoy, hello and happy new year. All aboard for the maiden voyage of Romaniacs Ferry Services Limited. Yes, we got the contract and the 14 million quid from Chris Grayling over Christmas. We said we once owned a matchbox North Sea ferry and that was good enough for him. So we're now broadcasting from aboard Pirate Radio Teresa out on Viking 40s and especially German Bite. <laughs> I'm Andrew Harrison and we have a dependable crew with us here today. Greece is known for its mastery of the shipping lane, so it's hello to first mate Alex Andreo. <laughs> hello Alex, welcome aboard. How are you doing? Oh, between... Uh... Death and immortality, as always these days. Well, that's life on the ocean wave, yeah. isn't it? Also, keep keeping. I'm, I'm actually a qualified sailor, you know. Oh, are you? I just, I just thought I'd throw that oh. in. Is that Hello. true? Yeah. Mm. Now enter your talent. Totally <laughs> true. <laughs> totally true. Because when I, when I was 14, I worked for a travel agency and they needed a spare in case someone called in sick from the, the boat that does the tours around Mykonos. <laughs> and so I had to study and qualify. Well, <laughs> is that the point where you're just like, this is actually too gay now? Like, I need to just bring this under control. <laughs> All I'm saying is Yasu Nafti. Um, <laughs> keeping us on course is navigator Ros Taylor of the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission. Hello, Ros. Welcome back. Pleasant last Christmas. Uh, not bad. I couldn't stop thinking about Brexit, though. And no. there wasn't enough Brexit news to feed me. So I kept thinking, <laughs> I want more Brexit news. I want more reporting. And there wasn't. There was just people being, you know, kind of a bit snippy on Twitter. It wasn't enough. No, not enough. And of course, we have our own Roger the Cabin boy, Ian Dunn, <laughs> editor of politics.co.uk. <laughs> hello, Ian. Happy New Year. Hello, hello. Thank you. Now, I'm not going to bang on about cross-channel ferries any longer, but what did we make of the Seabourn Ferry contract? Handed out without tender over Christmas to a company with assets of £66. Turns out Ostend cannot be dredged in time for Brexit Day anyway. Could we literally have set up a ferry service from this podcast by these standards? <laughs> Fairly par for the course, wasn't it? We probably have too many assets. We probably do. Well, we've, we've at least we've got, got to a fucking sailor. <laughs> <laughs> True. We do. And Let's totally do it. Yes, and the listeners can't see, but Roz's jumper is very nautical. Uh, it's a horizontal indeed. stripe. We're halfway there. We are halfway there. Girl. There was, around the Seabourn Ferry things, there was a lot of conspiracy talk that one of the directors, Mark Bamford, was somehow related to Anthony Bamford of JCB, major donors of the Tory party. This turned out not to be true, but it didn't stop. You know, you, you don't need to gild this lily, do you? It's bad enough as it, it is. is. It really mm. is. Um, and while we're on No Deal Theatre, did we enjoy the Manston Airport Potemkin traffic jam, as the Indies Tom Peck described? <laughs> Which, uh, with, I think, what was it, 89 lorries standing in for 6,000 on Manston Airport? It's Impressive. pathetic. It's pathetic. I've been in longer traffic than jams and that on the A20. I mean, on the A1, it's, it's just, God, is that all they could get? <laughs> it is quite amazing to fail at traffic jams, <laughs> at, like, at yeah. fake traffic jams. You just think, like, and then when the next sentence is, but don't worry, we'll definitely yeah. be okay under No Deal, you think, I don't know, mate, I'm not sure if I have full confidence in your competency at the moment. Well, the, the, the Road Haulage Association described as window dressing said it could not come close to the reality of 6,000 trucks stuck at Manston Airport. Um, but Ed, Ed from the Chemical Brothers, listener to the show, said he'd been to plenty of raves at Manston Airport, so getting traffic on and off is quite, <laughs> it's quite easy to understand. Um, we will be discussing uh, the meaningful vote later in the show. It's, um, the debate is taking place as we speak, as we record. There's a telly on in the corner, so we may break off at some point to say a thing has happened. We're also going to be talking about Channel 4's Brexit, the Uncivil War. And also the government seeking out their pay-to-stay registration scheme right in the middle of Christmas. But first, let's meet our special guest. Peter Kellner is the doyen of pollsters, ex-Newsnight political analyst, journalist and former president of YouGov. Though he retired from YouGov in 2016, you really wouldn't know it. He's a fixture on television and radio and works tirelessly to bring analysis and hard data into political debate. He is the expert we're not tired of. Welcome to Remain X, Peter. Uh, well, th thanks very much. And if I could... Uh help Roz out a bit, who was uh, expressing withdrawal symptoms uh, over Christmas. I just got back uh, this week from, from 10 days in, in Washington 
And I have to say, if you feel you're not getting enough dysfunctional politics in Britain, <laughs> you should try the United States. Hmm. Fair enough, yeah. So yeah. basically, frying pan fire, each, each worse mm. than the other. Indeed. If you had to live in one, in this state, the current state for the rest of your life, London or Washington right now, which would you pick? Ian, if you're making me an offer, put a, put a figure to it. And then I'll <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to be talking about the utility of polls and specifically the people's vote polls in, in a little bit later on. But Peter, what's your sense of the way things are heading right now at quarter past two on Wednesday? <laughs> well, Andrew, none of us. I've been saying for months, none of us can be sure how this will end up. I don't think any of us can be sure where we'll be in a week or, or, or ten days' time. Public opinion, what we can say, has moved. Clearly, not hugely, but clearly towards remaining in mm-hmm. the EU. It was the remain was just ahead in the polling through last summer and autumn. And after Theresa May came back with her withdrawal agreement, the polling showed very quickly, and it has remained like this consistently over what six or seven weeks. The public don't like the withdrawal agreement. People are polarizing increasingly, saying either we should stay in the EU after all. That's the biggest number, and it's climbing. Or we should get out fully. None of this messing around with a compromise. We should get out, get out of the single market, the customs union, and Britain should be completely free to do what it wants. My guess, at the risk of by the time people listening to the podcast, I'm proved wrong, which may very well be the case, I think the government will lose the big votes uh, next week. Uh, I think Parliament, and this is what is interesting this week, is... The decisions of the Speaker, John Burko, and the decisions of MPs are taking the whole issue of Brexit increasingly away from the government and into Parliament. This is, apart from everything else, a constitutionally fascinating period to mm-hmm. following politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote a very detailed piece um, on seven potential options for what mm-hmm. might be on the ballot for a people's vote. Seven variants. What's your preferred version? The reason there are, there are seven options is that one of the fundamental choices you've got to make is do we have a three-way referendum or set of referendums because there are three fundamental choices, remain in the EU, compromise deal, or leave completely. So you either have a referendum system which reflects all three options or you have a conventional referendum, and a conventional referendum is a binary one. Mm -hmm. Two choices. Mm -hmm. So if you can have a binary referendum, which of the three options do you leave out? My personal judgment and I can bore for Britain on this, is that there are technical issues to do with three-way referendums. Um, I think it needs to be binary. I think it should, and if we get one, probably will be, remain versus the government's deal, but it might be remain versus no deal. What I would say is I think the referendum really ought to be a simple choice between remain in the EU or a very particular form of Brexit, either the compromise or no deal. It's got to be a clear form of leave versus the clarity of remain. Mm-hmm. Is, there no, is there any reason that we couldn't just have a sort of first-past-the-post version with three options on it rather than all this sort of alternative vote, preferential, blah, yep. blah, blah, blah? There are all sorts of ways you can do a three-option referendum. And first-past-the-post, where we elect MPs, is only one of them. But let us suppose that one of the options is ahead with 40% and one has um, 35% and one has 25%. That adds up to 100, doesn't it? So 40% is, 40% is the winner on the first part of the post, but there are 60% of people who've not voted for yeah, it. Yeah. So um, you could certainly have... There's technically... There's no problem having the first past the post um, referendum. I'm not sure that 
it would really settle civic society down if the winner doesn't get to 50%. It's a very convincing argument. What did you think of the idea of a two-stage vote that some people have been putting forward? Right, let's think through a two-stage vote. The one that's been most um, suggested and, and thought about in number 10 is stage one is remain versus leave. If Remain wins, that's it. If Leave wins, we then go on, like a French presidential election a couple of weeks later, to a, a, a second stage, which is what kind of Leave. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what people think about. It sounds interesting. But bear this in mind. Um, let's suppose you're somebody who quite likes the withdrawal agreements. You're outside the EU, but the economy doesn't fall off a cliff. But you're really scared of a no deal yeah. mm. Brexit mm. do you vote for leave because your favourite choice is a particular form of leave or do you vote remain because you don't want to take the risk that you end up with the mm. most catastrophic one or the other way around you might be a convinced leaver who thinks the withdrawal agreement is, is all the problems of EU membership without the benefit of having a say how do you vote mm. in stage one so that's one of the reasons why if you actually look at the mechanics and if you like the game theory behind almost any three option system, you start heading into um, problems. And, and if it ends up as a three stage or a three, three um, choice referendum, game theory will come into it. And do we want a big national decision to be settled by the operation of game theory? Well, I think this is one we're Question going to be... answer is no. Yeah, yeah. exactly. This, this is one, ideally, people's vote is a subject we will be returning to soon. Um, but we're going to be getting into the Brexit news of the week after these announcements from Ships Entertainment Officer Alex Andreev. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first big one of 2019. Romaniacs Live is returning to the stage in London on Thursday, 7th of February. And this time, a special guest will be joining the panel. Our good friend David Schneider of the death of Stalin, the day-to-day Ellen Partridge and Plebs will be joining regulars Ian, Naomi Smith and Dorian Linsky for a nerve-wracking evening as we get closer and closer and closer to B-Day. Or not, depending on events. <laughs> Come down to find out who's stockpiling lentils, who has an escape plan and how many drinks or bribes it will take for David to reprise his famous physical cartoonist Brandt from the day to day. We're back at the legendary Leicester Square Theatre. Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. And, of course, Patreon backers got early bird access to tickets plus a discount. You can get that discount on tickets too, plus coveted Romaniacs mugs and T-shirts and every episode of the show delivered a day early if you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Romaniacs or just go to our Facebook page to find out more. That's Romaniacs live at the Leicester Square Theatre on Thursday, 7th of February. Tickets at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Thanks, Alex. Now let's dive into the swirling bilges of Brexit news. First up, Groundhog Deal, as Theresa May returns from the Christmas break to absolutely definitely put her deal to the Commons next week, even though, as someone once said, nothing has changed. Except it has, because the five-day Brexit debate has begun, and on Tuesday the government suffered an embarrassing defeat on the Yvette Cooper-Nicky Morgan Amendment, which limits its tax-raising powers in the event of no deal. Twenty Tory MPs, including six former Cabinet Ministers and 11 former junior Ministers, rebelled. Meanwhile, Labour's Chris Bryan and Conservative Dominic Grieve have tabled an amendment which, if passed, and I think it's happening right now on a screen near me, would force the government to come to the Commons and explain its plans if it really the is happening. Voted. It really is happening. It really right is happening. Yeah. So keep an eye on that. Yeah, the chamber is full. Um, 
With the vote margin looking strongly against May's deal, the People's Vote campaign are organising a major weekend of action before the big vote. They're exhorting everyone to either write to your MP via bestforbritain.org slash write, print and put up a window poster also at bestforbritain.org, and or join a street stall in your area. Go to peoples-vote.uk slash events to find yours. Anyway, one thing definitely hasn't changed. It's still baffling and depressing. Ian, what changed over Christmas, if no, anything? Nothing, nothing changed over Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um... The Cooper Amendment I thought was quite important because, um, I mean, its content is pretty meaningless, really. I don't really see that that it's effective in what it would do. I mean, if we really were heading towards no deal and nothing was changing it, I can't see MPs really trying to hold up the government doing spending. You'd want them to be doing the spending. So on practical terms, it doesn't seem to be anything sort of real there. What it seemed to me was just proof of concept of the Commons majority against no deal and of MPs... Um, willingness to enter into guerrilla warfare against the yes, government in order to stop that, it. That's exactly. It, that it's going to be a war of attrition, death by a thousand papers. Right, and just to have at them. And yep. finally, as soon as the new year broke, the, the expectation around Downing Street, of course, was let everyone chill out for New Year, eat too much food, drink too much wine, and then they'll be all rested and a bit more docile when they come back. <laughs> and instead they come back and it's just bam and at them. And so in that sense, not in the practical sense, but in the symbolic and the tactical sense, I did think it was quite a useful development. Alex, what's the relevance of Theresa May's promise today, Wednesday, that MPs are going to get a vote on the backstop if and when it's incorporated into the... I think effectively delegates the government's power to choose uh, whether they kick the can a little further down the road or whether the backstop comes in. It's actually not a choice between uh, having the backstop or not having the backstop. It's a choice between implementing an extension period... Uh, which would mean the backstop didn't kick in, or not implementing it an extension period, which would mean it would kick in. But under the agreement, there's only one extension period allowed, so it is effectively only kicking the can down the road, because at the end of whatever extension, if Parliament decides to go for an extension, at the end of that, we'd still be in backstop territory, unless the Northern Ireland border problem has been sorted out. And as I've said on this program many, many times before, the Northern Ireland uh, issue cannot be sorted out because you cannot Mm. have control of borders which don't exist. And to be clear, they're, they're they, they to, will. Yeah. They are, but just to be clear, quickly, they will vote for the extension of the transition because it is a far, far more optimal situation to be in than the backstop. It's a of continuation course. of where of you course, are. So she can offer as many votes as she likes. If you even have one little muscle of, of self-interest as a parliament, you will vote for the extension. OK. We have a big breaking news banner at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know what the breaking news People is. People are yet. bowing in front of the dispatch box. And well, Alison McGovern read out the numbers. That's usually the winning um, whip or the, win, um, that, the winning teller that reads out the news. So it looks as if the government's been defeated. But I may be proved wrong in about three seconds. Are you time. a really good lip reader, Peter? Because you... <laughs> well, no, I, can see who, I, see who, I can see he was reading out the, yeah. uh, the vote. And so it's Alison McGovern, who's one of the Labour, very strong pro-Remain Labour MPs. While we wait for the BBC I mean, to, to type very its tyrant properly. <laughs> this is a very helpful uh, thing by the BBC, just have a big break. There we go. Yeah. Government loses key amendment, MPs vote on yep. grieve amendment. There you go. OK. okay. Now, well, that is surprising. Right. Um, and, and it is significant because the really hard-line ERGers were against the grieve amendment. So is this actually more symbolic of their relative weakness than it is kind of germane to the way the bill will go through? 
I don't know. I mean, the 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 problem at the moment is, as we've said many times before, that there are loads of constituent majorities against stuff, but no constituent majorities for mm-hmm. something specific. And this remains the case. The idea is that as time goes by, people against no deal will coalesce around something. We don't know what that is yet. A people's vote, a, a citizen's assembly, we don't know what that will be yet. Um, but the, the, the fundamental uh, uh, good news about both of those votes is, I think, the fact that the government was really annoyed about this amendment today and fought it really hard says to me that they're probably not thinking of no deal as mm. the alternative. And the reason it says that to me is this. If they were thinking of no deal as the alternative, they would have no problem de- declaring the ha- their hand earlier. In fact, they would want to declare their hand immediately after losing the vote because they would want to smooth out financial market shock. They would want businesses and government departments to have as much time as possible to get ready, although that would give their opponents more time to act against it. Mm. But my sense is that their alternative is either a softer Brexit or some kind of uh, compromise. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they wouldn't object to this vote as vociferously as they did, and the ERG wouldn't either. Got you. This is, I think this is quite important, what's happened here today, actually. This, to me, looks like essentially, and, I, and I'm not trying to be hyper... It just this looks like Parliament is essentially at war with the government. Now, if you think about the structure of how things operate, it is that the sovereignty comes to Parliament by elections. And for the last two and a half years, the government has looked at the referendum result and gone, we're grabbing a bit of that sovereignty. Ultimately, we can take that bit of people power to smash down Parliament. Now, they've done it, did it over Article 50 notification. They did it in the use of statutory instruments uh, in the withdrawal bill. They do it again and again and again. Now, that is not working. Now, they tried to do it here. Here, they passed a business motion 4th of December that basically said, you can't amend this. Only the government can amend this business motion. Mm -hmm. Now, typically, you would expect that that had to be held to. What Burko did this morning by selecting it is essentially going against the motion that's been picked by the House. And I'm not... We can't be too relaxed about this. We can't be too resigned because many constitutional experts that I've spoken to this morning who were naturally... Uh, sort of against the way that government has acted are quite nervous about the decision that that Burko took there. Mm. But he is basically saying, look, you played silly buggers really hard. You decided you were going to have a minister stand up and shout tomorrow and that you could delay the vote that way, not have a vote on it. And even though you're sticking to the letter of the law, you are not abiding in any way by the spirit of the law and you keep on clamping down on Parliament by selecting that amendment and now by MPs backing it, they are really, really taking back control. And that seems to me actually quite a seminal moment that could get lost if you just look at the, the motions yeah. and the amendments and the blah, blah, blah. Peter? Yeah, I, that's, this is absolutely the point. You could argue that both the um, motions passed this week, the, 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 or the amendments, Yvette Cooper's about some funding uh, and now the, the one about uh, the, the government coming back within three days, the government can actually quite easily uh, deal with both. Mm. The money isn't going to run out. We're not like Washington in that respect. <laughs> yes, so the money true. isn't going to yeah, run true. out. Parliament won't let the money run out. And the government can just come back after three days following some amendment and say, well, we're going to think about it and we'll go and talk to the EU. The mm. point is, as you say, that the Speaker, John Burko, has now 
created, in effect, a new precedent about the relationship between government and parliament. Mm. And the significance is that if the government can't get its withdrawal agreement through next week, and it looks almost certainly it can't, parliament will then take control of the process. And this has... This is constitutionally big news, and it's also very big news because I think this does make it much harder for Brexit to go through without a deal. And I, as a supporter of a people's vote, a fresh referendum, I think in the last uh, 48 hours, a referendum has become very much more likely because Mm. Parliament from now on will be in the driving seat. Mm. Thank God for that. Alex, quick. Um, (laughs) (laughs) An illustration of the constitutional perversity going Mm. on at the moment. Uh, Suella Braverman, uh, a Tory MP, member of the ERG, and former Brexit minister for all of last year, um, was saying yesterday that, well, Parliament might be against no deal, but there's nothing you can do about it, so na 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 That was her attitude. And this is a member of the legislature who resigned from the executive that's meant to check the executive, celebrating the fact the executive has left the legislature powerless. That is constitutionally perverse. That Mm. is one branch Mm. of government celebrating the fact that another branch of government has hugely overreached and grabbed its powers. And there were there were various MPs standing up today and challenging Burko and saying um, that you're not allowed to do this. That, you know this this is this is not constitutionally acceptable. And he first engaged in a bit of sophistry and said, "Well, it's not about amending a motion; it's an amendment on a motion, so I can." And then after that, he came down to a point, I think, and said, "Well, I'm only allowing something to be put in front of the House, which you can all vote on, and they, I'm I'm handing matters over to the Commons, and I'm giving you the chance." to vote on it and if you don't like it you know vote vote vote, it ne- vote vote it down <laughs> and that i think was was the key point and i think that's why he will get away with it mm, excellent um peter squeal of tires because this is moving from one subject to a kind of a related one you've been pretty clear that the labor party would suffer in a general election if it went in supporting brexit the continuing left narrative is we have to back brexit or we lose the northern leave constituencies this is backed by solid polling uh that's right so the 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 uh, polling that was done uh, published last week from from YouGov, uh, shows that if people people ask if Labour in, ends up helping the Conservatives get Brexit through, how would you vote? And the Labour vote crashes from thirty four percent down to twenty five percent, twenty six percent. And what what we found um, is that a lot of re- remainers who vote Labour would think again, they'd vote Lib Dem or they'd vote Green or, or whatever. And very few people who are Leave voters who are not already with Labour w- w- would switch to Labour. And, th- and the reason is simple. The, the great majority of Leave voters who aren't currently with the Labour Party are with the Conservatives or UKIP. Mm. Why should they switch yeah, yeah. to, to, to Labour? Now, plainly, this is a, a hy- hypothetical question, as indeed all polling months or years <laughs> away from the election is, is bound to be. So I'm not going to go to the stake and say whether Labour will lose 1 million, 2 million, 3 million, 4 million votes. But what is absolutely clear is that there is a strong remain element of the current Labour votes that would be deeply irritated. And when you think of the seats that Labour won in the 2017 general election, famously Kensington and Canterbury, but a whole host of university seats, um, some of the better off London areas, rewinning Southgate, remember 
Michael Bertillo famously lost 20 years ago. There's a, there's a whole raft of uh, Labour MPs who relied on the big Remain vote. That's true. And, I, um, and it's clear to me that if Labour ends up being seen to help Brexit get through, Labour can kiss goodbye to holding on to a lot of those seats. And I'm not sure that it would pick up uh, many or indeed any seats in the North or Midlands. Yeah. I just thought it important that we mentioned Her Majesty's opposition because they're like a bit lonely that they haven't mentioned at all in the show but, so far. But isn't, it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, isn't it to an extent, uh, a sort of polling this, before Labour have chosen uh, a, a policy route and made the argument for it, it's like going into a pizza restaurant and asking a table of people there, do you prefer margarita, pepperoni or sushi? Um, you know, the, the, the other option is not even in their head because no one has stood up and argued for it. Mm-hmm. The polling may be very different if someone actually takes a leadership position and says, I think this is what's right for the country oh, because X, Y, Z. No I, one is doing I, that no, now. No, nobody disputes that. Indeed, my personal view is if Corbyn, if we do have a referendum and Corbyn comes off the fence and advocates remain, I think this will, this will add to Labour support mm. rather than subtract from it. But what we can say, and this is consistent, is that Labour voters... Labour voters in the referendum voted around two to one for Remain. Today, Labour voters, it's three to one or more pro-Remain. A lot of Labour voters are having second thoughts because it's a Conservative government and, in their view, screwing up. Um, So we do know that amongst Labour voters and even more amongst Labour Party members, there is a strong wish for Remain. And therefore... Uh, however hypothetical the question, however much you try and aim off in terms of how leaders might behave, if you have a leader who's going against the views of 80% of his natural supporters mm. on the big issue of the day, that is, as, as Sir Humphrey Appleby would have said 20 years ago in Yes Minister, that's courageous. Yeah. <laughs> OK, <laughs> moving on to television. Because there isn't enough Brexit to go around and because Ros was having a uh, Brexit uh, withdrawal symptoms over Christmas, this week we got Channel 4's Brexit, The Uncivil War, featuring Benedict Cumberbatch as the shabby Sherlock Holmes of leave, Dominic Cummings. Britain makes a noise. It groans, he tells us in the opening scenes. Did it make us groan? Uh, who, who around the table watched it? I watched it. Sure. I watched it. I yep. did. Yep. Did we I didn't it? fucking want to, but you made me, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, did you enjoy it in the end? No, I didn't. You didn't enjoy it. Um, I did think it was very, very good, mm. but I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't uh, meant to be enjoyed, really, was it? I suppose not. I, I mean, I could, I could see that it was, it was, it was better than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. I thought it was better than if it had done things one way or another. It did feel like the opening effort to try and grapple with the psychological sort of patriotic implications of what this thing had done, and a lot of it. Okay, so what was good and bad about it are both framed around it. It's. Um, it's resistance to coming to a decision on whether Cummins is basically a good guy or a bad guy. So it comes in, he's this sort of interesting, extremely cerebral, you know, chaos agent, but maybe possibly full of bullshit. And at the end, you sort of get this sort of moment in front of a committee where there's quite a strong suggestion of he's opened up these demons that he cannot control. And I feel that would have had a bit more power if, if it had been willing to say something about him one way or another rather than just sort of balancing all the balls in the air. Yeah. So it was a little bit too cautious for me, but it was a valiant effort, I thought. Yeah. Ross, did you enjoy it? 
No, I mean, like Ian, I didn't enjoy it, but uh, mm. I found it fascinating nonetheless because you know it was about Brexit and it was very, very well acted for the most part. Um, mm. I think there have been, there were some criticisms about it from people like Carol Cadwallader and who were basically saying we didn't hear enough about how they lied. We didn't hear enough about detail about how they lied. And to me, that wasn't the point. You know, this is a drama. And if you keep on hammering home, yes, they lied here, they lied here, they lied here, people are going to switch off. And I think it made it, made it very clear that vote leave and leave.eu and be leave and so on all, all lied at yes. various points. The point is, and this is the interesting thing, we know they lied. How is it possible to get away with that kind of lying now in British politics? And how is it possible now for us to have doubled down on it and for people to be carrying on lying and getting deeper and deeper and deeper into lies in the last two and a half years? Mm. And that, for me, is the really fascinating question because uh, it, it, it gets to the real heart of what is going wrong with British politics? Mm. What I found, um, I mean, I sort of, again, couldn't enjoy it. My loathing of the cast of characters was was, was too great for me to be able to actually appreciate the, the dramatic, uh, you know, direction and the, and the obvious great skill um, and, and talent involved. However, I did think that the massive disjuncture between Dominic uh, Cummings as a fully rounded character and then the kind of cartoon Statler and Waldorf presentation of Gove and, uh, and Boris Johnson. You can't, you can't impersonate Johnson. I mean, he is, it's impossible to impersonate him because he is an impersonation of, him, of himself, basically. <laughs> um, yeah. I, thought, I thought it was fascinating with Carswell because Carswell comes across as a complete loser. And why on earth is he in this at all? And they got his, his facial expression exactly right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So that was that was very very well done, and also with Matthew Elliott, who we don't hear much about. Um, uh, It it really got in in, into the um, uh, mechanics of the relationship between the um, old school Tories, people like Bernard Jenkin and old school Eurosceptics like Bill Cash. And then on another wing, the uh, Mavericks, you know, the populists like um, uh, Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks. And then you have Cumberbatch. Cummings coming in and disrupting all that and th- taking taking almost nothing from those guys, but just bringing entirely his own spin and showing how he was able to cut through with his take back control slogan and basically avoid having to have very much to do with them at all. What I found really hard to take, though, was the idea that this huge subversion of British democracy is depicted as a kind of hero's journey. And it's a hero's journey that ended in a catastrophe. He wasn't a hero for me. He wasn't. It was it was much more complicated than that. Mm. I think, you know, the listening, the listening, I can hear Britain groaning. It just that was to show how bizarre it was like almost, you know, kind of Hamlet Hamlet kind of moment. He was he's a bit mad. We have an actor in the studio. What did you think of it, Alex? (laughs) And a writer. I think I think we need to move away from the idea that that the primary function of drama is to be enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's the primary fu- function of some stuff, <laughs> yeah. but not of everything. The primary function of some of it is to make us think. And I found that it made me think very deeply because it was actually told from the point of view of effectively the Brexit side for the most part. And I found that really useful because I found that it stimulated something in me that realized a couple of things for the first time. One relates to this idea about Carswell being a loser, but it it actually extended to all of them. And I think that was very interesting that the Brexit campaign consisted of a band of rejects in many, many ways of of a band of people that had not managed to make it in conventional politics that would be considered losers for the most part. And I think 
part of the reason why their campaign was effective was that they spoke to losers in inverted commas in society. Mm. And we have to look at why over the last 40 years we've created so many losers that we no longer share a language to speak to, yeah. to have this conversation. And the focus group thing is pretty powerful on that And they point, spoke yeah. the language. That's the truth. They spoke the language of the person who's been rejected and hurt by the system, mm. and the other side didn't. The second thing that I thought it made really, really clear was how much of a moral vacuum they really operated within. At no point did you see anyone from the campaign ask themselves, should we? Yeah. They were preoccupied with, can we? They never for one moment considered any uh, uh, consideration of should we. It reminded me of the, the f famous final line of the Nixon article in the Washington Post that said, you know, their, their lust for power meant they ignored any legal or ethical consideration. And to me, that's what came through really, really clearly, mm -hmm. that they, they all saw it as a game. And all of them were preoccupied with winning that game. No one stopped to think what the consequences were of that. Vote. At its yeah. best, it had this sort of, you remember United 93, um, that sort of September the 11th film, yeah. uh, which sort of shows these guys caught in airports, on airplanes, as this event takes place. And they spent, the protagonist spent the whole film trying to work out what the fuck is going on. You know, they're basically the people caught in history that's bigger than they are. And at its very best, it had that thing yeah. of actually you're here and there's big, big social change, technological change happening around you and everyone's trying to keep hold of it. But I think that those moments were, were, were pretty thin. Yeah. yeah. Peter, one aspect of the, of, of the film was that we see the Leave campaign, uh, so the Remain campaign employing very traditional polling, focus groups, asking people what they think and then trying to offer it to them. And we see the Leave campaign doing none of that, actually using the latest in data science and targeting to create desires, create ideas, create wants. As a person in this world, what did you take from that aspect of the film? Uh, I thought that one of the things where it's a half-truth, and, and half-truths are often more dangerous than outright lies, because, <laughs> uh, yes, a lot of the Remain... Uh, research was conventional, though not completely, because um, I know Andrew Cooper, who, who ran that research, and, and, and he developed for that campaign, as he had for, with the Scottish referendum campaign, some, some very fresh ways of analysing data. And equally, um, you would not have known watching the play that the Leave campaign did actually commission conventional research hmm. um, from, um, from Martin Boone of ICM. Hmm. Um, and they also had some quite interesting new ways of doing traditional um, research. So, and, and the stuff about, you know, they found three million people that nobody else has, has got, that's, that's just fantasy. That's invention. Um, I, I, you know, I thought overall, I mean, I'm a great fan of James Graham. I've seen three of his stage plays. I've been, I think they've all been fantastic. This, I thought, was good, but not as good as his three stage plays about the Whips office in the 70s, about Murdoch mm, and yeah. Sun and about the Labour politician. More, more distant. Um, uh, those three, I thought, were all, are all exceptionally fine mm, yeah, yeah. plays. So I was a bit disappointed. Had it been an anonymous writer, I said, this is rather good. Mm -hmm. James Graham, <laughs> that raised my expectations. They weren't quite met. Mm. OK. Finally, uh, on the news bit, the fun story about how EU citizens can pay to stay in the UK Yay! after Brexit. Hooray for that. And how much it's going to cost them. The Home Office bra bravely launched the introductory video to its settlement scheme on the 28th of December when the entire country was in a roses and celebrations induced stupor. But it was still roundly lampooned 
ruined for showing smiling, happy young people who were clearly overjoyed at having to pay 65 quid to stay in the UK or £32.50 for their kids. Not least because they all turned out to be stock images of people who'd already advertised Canadian banks and Australian software. Social media was awash with people describing how their children, who had never lived anywhere else, would have to pay to stay. And even the editor of The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, said the sinister tone and hint of deportation in the video was unforgivable. Alex, you previously said you're not going to register and you're off to Canada. Um, That's not what I've said. (laughs) You might not have meant it. Fake news! You actually said it. You might not have meant it. No, no, I said it's my backup plan unless the process is one that is very cheap and very simple. Well, so you don't have to activate your backstop. What was your your reaction to this launch at a strange time of year? That it's not quite... Uh, uh, it's not quite cheap enough and it's not quite simple enough. Mm. That's my, my honest reaction. There is, there is a part in a migrant psychology that I've seen in all kinds of situations that just tells you keep your head down and, you know, sort of play by the rules and don't rock the boat. It, it is really strongly when you feel you are a stranger, an interloper in, a, in, a, in another country's society. Um, and that, of course, is telling me just pay the 62 quid and, and fill in the application, see mm. what happens. Um, but I also think that, that on a principal point of view, it's an outrageous thing to do. It is an outrageous thing to ask parents to register children, which for the most part will have been born in this country and will know no other country than this country, to pay £32.50 in order to apply, because that's the point. It's not a registration scheme, it's an application scheme. And to me, application carries the threat of rejection. Mm. So the question is, what if I don't pay the 62 quid? What if I can't pay the 62 quid, which would be sort of 250 quid for a family? Mm. Um, What if I I decide to be civilly disobedient, disobedient and say, I'm not going to register under this scheme because I think it's unfair? What happens then? Do my rights not exist? Do I get deported? Because that seems to me to be the implicit threat in any kind of application scheme. It seems to be implicit that either you pay this money and go through this channel or you get kicked out of this country. That necessarily is the implicit threat. It is. I mean, it absolutely is. So that, to me, does not fulfill the... the, uh, uh, the guarantee that was given by the Leave campaign before the referendum and by the government several times since the vote that my rights are guaranteed, automatically guaranteed. That's the phrase that's been used time and time again, automatically guaranteed. You don't apply and pay and go through hoops for anything that's automatically guaranteed. The two, the two concepts are opposite. This week's show comes with support from our good mates at Everymatic, the boutique travel experts who are there to help everyone explore beautiful Greece. Summer is a long way away, but it's not too soon to book your trip to Greece and the most fascinating cultural sites and the best beaches in all of Europe. Plus, now that we know you won't need a visa, even if there's no deal, you can exercise this bit of your freedom of movement, no matter what Rhys Mogg says, and with confidence. Everymatic are experts in one-to-one holiday planning, and they know the islands, the mainland, and all of Greece's hidden gems inside out. Email our friend Alex from Everymatic at Alex at everymatic.com, hence the name. Whatever your budget and whatever you're looking for, Everymatic will put together a bespoke holiday that's perfect for you. Personally, I love Naxos, Paros and Athens, but Alex Andreo, where should the discerning Romaniac go in 2019? <laughs> well, um, my two recommendations are uh, Pelion, P-E-L-I-O-N, 
which is a peninsula uh, on the east side of the mainland. Um, it, it, it has a beautiful range of mountains there that is on a very narrow peninsula. And so the attraction is that you can get from incredible seaside village to incredible mountain village in the space of a couple of miles. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the mountain of the centaurs. Okay. Um, Centre Park, in fact. Yes, the Centre Park. Very good. Oh, Lord. That's why they pay me the non-existent um, books. Yes. Um, so, uh, and when you go there, you will understand if you walk around the many trails, the many walking trails around those mountains, there is actual magic mm -hmm. in the air. It genuinely seems like, you know, you will turn a corner and, and a nymph will appear. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and you have another recommendation? My other recommendation, because I will get lynched if I do too many more of these without mm -hmm. suggesting Mykonos, okay. the place where I was born. Um, look, Mykonos is expensive and it's crowded. Um, uh, but the point is it's expensive and it's crowded for a reason. It's expensive and it's crowded because it is utterly, devastatingly beautiful. And so what I would suggest is last week of September, first week of October, is a splendid time to visit Mykonos. Everything is much, much cheaper. The weather is actually incredibly mellow because winds blow quite a lot in the dead of summer. Mm -hmm. And around the end of September, it actually goes very quiet wind-wise and very warm. The sea is the sea temperature is very warm, and it's a beautiful time to go, and you can get a good package for it. So drop a line to alex at everymatic.com, not this Alex that you've just heard speaking, female Alex, who's in Athens, and tell her Romaniac sent you. She'll be delighted to hear from you, and she'll put together the best holiday you've ever had. That's everymatic.com, boutique, unique and Greek. Peter Kellner, former president of YouGov, has been our brilliant special guest this week. Peter, it might sound like an odd question, but we hear about YouGov all the time. It's part of the furniture. It's part of the news. What differentiates it from other pollsters like opinion and uh, observation? What, what is the, the point of differentiation? The starting point is that uh, YouGov was the first online polling mm -hmm. company in Britain. It was, was set up uh, in, 20, uh, in the year 2000, so it's coming up to 19 years. Um, and for the first four or five years, all the other well-known polling companies poo-pooed the idea you could do research online and they tried to throttle us um, at birth. We, we were not throttled. And, of course, now they all... that uh, You either got new online companies like um, Opinion and Conservation or the established companies like ICM or Ipsos, uh, Mori, now have do a lot of their own work um, online. So YouGov was, was, was the trailblazers. Um, a lot of the research you see in the papers is, is research that could be done by anybody. Mm. Um, uh, but I think where YouGov as a business, as distinct from a, a, a publicly known brand with political polling, it's businesses that means that because it was the pioneer, it managed to corner various um, markets of online research, which nobody else has been able to, to touch. I'll give you a tiny example. Um, we developed a product called Brand Index about well, 15 years ago, and this is a daily track of hundreds of public-facing brands. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got sells it as a subscription product. Um, 
and and the thing about subscription products is that once you've sold enough subscriptions to cover your costs, every subscription after that is almost pure profit. But the other point is that once you're doing it effectively, there's no point in anybody else trying to do the same thing because Mm. they're not going to get the subscriptions they need to break even. So it is is a sort of almost a natural um, monopoly. Now, as a believer in proper capitalism, I believe in competition. <laughs> but what I remember was that when I was a young journalist 40-odd years ago, somebody said to me, um, remember, the essence of capitalism is the avoidance of competition. Um, and pretty well all companies, possibly even Soho Radio, are looking, <laughs> are looking for their uh, monopoly niche. Yes. That they can do that nobody else does or nobody else does nearly as well. Mm. And, and and a lot of business is the search for monopoly niches. So what makes YouGov different is because it was the pioneer of this kind of polling, it has settled in more monopoly niches than anybody else. Mm. It's been a tumultuous few years for polling, not just with Brexit, but also with Trump and with the, mm. the, the, the 2017 general election. How does it feel to be an industry that has been defined in, in the popular mind? A lot of people think, well, pollsters, they're the ones who get it wrong all the time. Uh, Even though those, you know, all of those were well within the margins of error but it's been kind yeah. of it's, it's also been sold to people as don't listen to pollsters they get it wrong all the time uh, yeah this is something you, you end up having to put up with uh, I can be really tedious and go through all, all the you've got predictions that made over the years <laughs> or even if I understand it's down to one I personally put my name to we got many more things right than wrong. I remember in 2008 when Boris Johnson first beat Ken Livingstone for mayor of London, you was the only company that showed Boris Johnson ahead. All the other mm. traditional companies uh, showed Livingstone ahead. We came in for a lot of stick. We were proved right and we got the result spot on. Uh, the day of the Scottish referendum, I went on air half an hour after the polls closed and said Scotland has voted to stay in the UK. We'd done a, not a strictly an exit poll, we weren't standing outside polling stations, but an on-the-day poll, and it was clear to me that, that Scotland has voted to stay in the UK, and that's the only time in my life when I think it's something I've said on air, uh, move the pound up one cent against the dollar. Um, <laughs> um, I, I could have made some money had I got in ahead of speaking, uh, but I didn't, I didn't. Uh, um, but yes, along the way, we got we got things wrong. Um, I was involved in the 2015 um, election polling when all the pollsters uh, overestimated the Labour vote and underestimated the Conservative vote. Mm. I'd left polling by the 2017 election um, when most of the polls showed the Conservatives winning far uh, a far bigger victory than they did in fact win. That was a curious one because in fact virtually all the pollsters. Their raw data was pretty well spot on. But then when they made the adjustment for turnout, they basically, bearing in mind what had happened in 2015, when a lot of students and young voters had said, yeah, I'm going to vote Labour, and they didn't bother to turn out at all. That was one of the reasons why the Conservatives did better than expected. So they decided to disbelieve the youngsters who said they were going to vote Labour in 2017 and the parishers, do you know, they came out and voted. <laughs> <laughs> so so the raw numbers were fine because the raw numbers had those uh, youngsters voting Labour, but they t- suppressed, or not suppressed, they, they reduced that number yeah. because they made a judgment about turnout. The judgment about turnout was wrong. Mm. Uh, since retiring from YouGov, you seem to have become more kind of openly and, and uh, proudly anti-Brexit. You've written in The Guardian that if Corbyn backs Brexit, he mm. faces catastrophe. The polls are clear that support for remaining has rocketed. Is it gratifying that the data is agreeing with you? or are you being persuaded by the data? Um, 
Oh, I'm being persuaded by the data. And, mm. and, and, and sorry, look, I, I'm bound to say that. So let me say something which hopefully is <laughs> slightly more um, persuasive, is that, you know, I, I think over the years I built up some reputation as being a, at least an honest analyst of, of mm. the data. And, you know, I'm not going to risk trashing my reputation by saying things which are provably wrong. Mm. And remember, all the British polling companies, they, they, they come together in a trade body called the British Polling Council. I was involved in the beginning and I helped to write its charter. And at the very heart of that charter is transparency. So whenever I comment on a, on a YouGov poll, you can go to YouGov's website and you can see exactly what questions were asked, mm. exactly what the numbers were and how the different demographics groups break. So that transparency inevitably makes me take care that nobody can go to the tables and say I've, I've lied or, or, or distorted or, or warped mm. um, the numbers. Can I can I ask yeah. a question? Um, I used to I used to work for for a government department. We used to commission a lot mm. of polls, and whenever we commissioned a poll, we had an internal statistician that would come to the meetings and say, "You can't ask this question; it's too leading. You can't ask this question; it's too ambiguous." And I look at a lot of polls now and I look at some of the questions and I really do think this really is meaningless. I mean, you might, you know, do you want the government to get on with it is a classic question that you will only ever really get one answer to. I've never and, asked a question like that. No, I understand, well, but I a lot of people do. So have, have, has polling become more customer-driven in a way that you, you effectively... Uh, fashion the result that a particular uh, commissioning body wants. Alex, let, let me, if, if you don't mind, be a bit prim and proper here. <laughs> when, when, when we were setting up YouGov and developing it, I made it quite, when I was chairman and the president of YouGov, I said to our staff, make sure you always ask clear, unbiased questions. Did YouGov make mistakes in, on my watch? Yes, of course. Sure. But, but the intention was always to ask fair and unbiased questions. And I would say to our staff, if a client wants you to ask a biased question so they get the answer they want, tell them it is not in their interests. Because if you ask a biased question, it is obviously a biased question. And it means when you try and publicize the results, uh, people are going to see through. This is especially true of, of, of campaigning organisations who want polls to, to, to promote um, what they're saying, as now mm. with, with, with against Brexit. Um, but, um, and I said, I'd rather not have that business than break that rule. Yeah. And we did lose some business. And I would sometimes see our rivals asking the questions we refuse to ask. And my view is... YouGov's reputation is worth a lot more. I mean, in purely self-interest terms, is worth a lot more than the odd five or ten thousand pounds you might lose by refusing to bend your principles on how you yeah. ask questions. It's, it's difficult, though, isn't it? Because um, one of the things I was thinking about today with regard to this is the question: Do you want a second referendum or do you want a people's vote? And John Curtis was uh, writing about this um, yesterday, I think, and saying that if you ask people if they want a second referendum, they are much more likely to say no. If you ask them if they want a people vote they say yes um it's very difficult isn't it which would you plump for because clearly if it was a poll commissioned by people's vote they would want people's vote and i think that's an example isn't it of a way it's very very hard sometimes not to ask a leading question uh yeah on, on that particular example um it's really does and indeed i've written about this i i have made precisely the point that john curtis has made that if you ask do you want a second re re referendum on balance people say no do you want a people's vote 
on the whole, people say yes. Uh, and I made the point that, that when responses depend so much on the precise wording of things which would seem to, as were the normal person, to mean the same thing, it means that a hell of a lot of our fellow citizens aren't really engaged with that issue. Mm. Um, so, so the main conclusion to draw is that you, whether or not there should be a referendum stroke people's vote is mm. not an issue which is engaging the majority of the population. As to the um, uh, the questions that we've asked, and you can look them up on the YouGov site, uh, we've tended to use the term a public vote or should the decision be taken by Parliament or, or people voting in a referendum. I, I've tried to ask it as neutrally as possible, but the key thing here is that if you get a reasonable form of wording, if you stick to it, then you can see the trends. Yeah. So even if the actual level at any one moment is open to doubt because of the wording, if you've used the same wording and you ask it again and again and again, so, so the it goes up and goes down. You can, so the movement is always more reliable than the snapshot, if that makes sense. That, that, that's right. Yeah. Um, okay. And, and that, when I said much earlier that there's been a shift to remain over the last few months, that's because the same question be asked again and again and again, right. and you can see the shift. Right, yeah. right. We mentioned it briefly in talking about the uh, Channel 4 Brexit um, drama, the idea that data mining was used, uh, maybe not as kind of clear as, mm. as as simply as it was depicted in that in that mm. film, but is certainly become a much more powerful part of a political campaigning. Now, what's the mm. traditional polling industry doing to deal with the rise of 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 personal data mining, of micro targeting, and things like that? Because it's it's it does put your relevance into question to an extent. I I'm not quite sure what question you're asking, Andrew. Is that do do, do polls? make use of these techniques to understand their panel in the case of you absolutely um, and it's one of the techniques that you use to make sure we have a balanced sample so you have the right proportion of people by social media classifications as by age or, or, or region or, or social class or gender or whatever at an educational level um, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's another way of trying to get a handle on, on the electorate um, if you uh, but if, you, if you're meaning something else... Well, I'm not uh, thinking more in the sense that, that uh, tr traditionally polling has gone out to find out what people think yeah. and deliver it to political campaigners yeah. and actors. And what we have seen, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is that the, the you know data mining and micro-targeting is more about generating uh, uh, needs and wants and wishes yeah. and directions in amongst the electorate. Is that something the traditional polling industry can do anything about? Well, when you say do anything about, I'm not quite sure what there is. Well, I mean, to well, preserve well, well, Because, look... If, if, if any particular form of promotion, whether it's television advertising, print advertising, social media, tweeting, whatever, if it's having the effect, it should show up in our in our data. I mean, you know, you you gov like other research companies, their job is to is to take the temperature mm. Mm. of the public, yeah. not to not to give them paracetamol or aspirin to lower the temperature. The, um, and 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 if as were well, the operation of all these new techniques uh, affects the, the the public temperature, then a good polling company, good research company, should be able to detect that. Is there, is there any sense that uh, uh, people are, I don't want to use the word more flaky, so let's call them more mercurial. Um, I was really shocked by the number of people I met who said I had no idea how I was going to vote until the day. I decided because of X or Y or Z. This to me seems completely alien. And it seems also relatively newer that, that it just instinctively are people more changeable and and so depending on what day and what time of day you catch them are you likely to get vastly different results 
uh, fundamentally, you're, you're right that it's happening. Let me step back. Um, the 50, 60 years ago, uh, the great majority of people had quite strong partisan loyalties. Mm. Then, conservative Labour, very few liberals, Greens didn't exist, Scottish nationalists were, were not around. Um, today, uh, the number of people who say they have a strong or even a weak attachment to a particular party is very, very much lower. Yeah. So people are, are, are much more um, uh, willing at each at election to vote, make a contingent vote. Uh, according to what they think is right for them and their family at that election, yeah. rather than to say, I'm Labour born and bred, I'm Conservative born and bred, I will stick with my tribe. So the public is much less um, tribal. And one of the curious things about this, which the political professionals say they recognise, but they don't behave as if they recognise, is that the kind of people who decide close elections, or for that matter, close referendums, are the people who are most likely to switch around, yeah. make choices at the last moment. And they're the people who follow politics least closely. And not only do they follow politics less closely, they make their judgments in a different way from you know, graduates with strong views about the environment or about taxation or about the health service or about um, yeah, yeah. Europe. Um, the people who matter most in a close election or referendum they're what the political scientists called valence voters. And this means they don't vote according to policies. They vote according to character, competence. Is this party? Is this leader? Are they listening to me? Are they on my side? Can I trust them? Authenticity, I, authentic, authenticity comes up again it's and all here. These, it's all these character and competence judgments that people make often implicitly. And you, know, you saw this, I think, quite significantly in the 2017 general election when Theresa May's rate, personal rating collapsed during the course of the campaign because when she was on television a lot and being questioned a lot, you know, the, the, old, the Maybots came over and people could sense this was somebody who couldn't deal with the questions, had difficulty giving straight answers, couldn't engage. She pretended a policy on social care had remained the same when, in fact, that she'd done a, an obvious U-turn. And so um, a, a lot of people in 2017 came to make a judgment character about Theresa May, which and, and also to something about Jeremy Corbyn, who they'd not seen before and in the election. They quite liked what they saw. But these were valence judgments. They weren't going in as voters into the detail mm. of this or that party's yeah. policies. Peter, we could talk about this forever. And in fact, we would love to have you back on the show at it's some wonderful. point. But we've only got so much time, even though it's a podcast. And we are, I'm afraid, coming to the end of the show, the end of the first year of 2019, which means that the Brexit time capsule is back. Uh, Peter, as our guest, what would you like to put in our blast-proof vault of things we'll miss if we leave the EU or things we'll need if or when we leave the EU? If we leave the European Union, I'll miss the wonderful multicultural, tolerant, open sense of diversity that we've got in Britain because I think the chaos of Brexit will sharpen divisions. If we stay in, can I hope for something? Yeah. I hope. That's, we have... that's completely against our brand. <laughs> well, it's going to go anyway. Tough. <laughs> I hope we pass a law banning all referendums. Um, oh, God, yes. Um, Margaret Thatcher, people don't remember this, the first big speech Margaret Thatcher made in Parliament after becoming the leader of the Conservative Party was against the 1975 referendum bill. She did a brilliant speech huh. saying why referendums are a really bad idea. 
I agree with what she said then, not with the opposite view she held about 20 years later. And our first closing language clip of the year is in Italian. It comes from listener Anna Godolo, and it's her second contribution to the show. Salve, sono di nuovo Anna, e voglio dirvi che spero che l'articolo 50 venga esteso sine die, così che potremo ascoltare Rimaniacs fino alla fine dei nostri giorni. Ciao! That means, hello, it is me, Anna, again, and I wanted to say that I hope that Article 50 is extended sine die so that we can listen to Romaniacs to the end of our days. Ciao. <laughs> that sounds a lot better to you than it does to us, Anna. Remember, uh, listeners, you can send us your quick sign-offs in one of the languages of Europe at info at romaniacs.com. Special request for the ones we haven't had yet, Basque, Polish, Cornish, and Klingon, if you can speak it. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Peter Kellner. Are you looking forward to another hell year? We've only just got to the end of the last one. Uh, isn't that called Confucian curse? You may be living interesting in times. Yes. It's far too interesting for me. It is far too interesting. I think we've all got news poisoning. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks to Roz, Alex and Ian. Don't forget Romaniacs Live on Thursday the 7th of February, the 27th birthday of the Maastricht Treaty. We can have a big cake of some sort. <laughs> Tickets are on sale now. And here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, while we salute some of our latest Patreon backers. It's hello from me to Nicholas Porter, Gilbert McNaughton, Stuart Harris, Vince Wall and Tom Kemp. Thanks from me to Carolyn De Bruyne, Luke Bolton, David Skeet, Thomas Thwaites and Philip Hobgen. Happy New Year from me to William Wilkinson, Ben Walker, Stephen McCarthy, Ben Clifford and Gary Dawkin. Finally, thanks from me to Yestin George. Hello Yestin, sends a bit of Welsh. Neil E. Roberts. Claudia Le Sœur Drape, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Rav, just Rav, and Alistair Brown. Many thanks, and we'll see you next week. Romaniacs was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ros Taylor, Alex Andreu, and Ian Dunt. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Oh,